0: Morning, church. So I'm going to be speaking out of Luke chapter 15 this morning. I actually am really looking forward to being here on Palm Sunday. Um, Last year I was away speaking uh, at another church. Um, And I think it's one of my favourite... opening up kind of of who God is and what the kingdom is about. Um, One of those pictures that we see in the Bible that um, has really transformed my thinking. Um, And I think um, Palm Sunday and even over um, the Easter, um, Easter week and following on from that as we start to talk about what that message means for this thing we call church Um, what all of the things that Jesus talks about and all the things that actually happen after the resurrection when he speaks to those who are going to go into the world and preach the gospel so we speak about all of those things it's a great time to actually invite someone in who maybe doesn't feel like they fully have a grip on what this religion thing has to offer. Maybe you know someone who loves God, considers himself a spiritual person, but has yet to connect with this bigger picture of the kingdom and really get to know what being part of a church is about, or maybe somewhere along the line, they let that get warped by some bad experiences or or those sort of things. This next few weeks, this next season in church will be a a great time to actually invite people into a part of the story that's going to shed some light on those things. That actually starts a little bit in this story. The text for today actually starts right at the beginning of chapter 15 and then jumps down to the parable about the prodigal son. Which isn't actually just a parable about the prodigal son. And this is why we start in verse 1 to 3. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to him. Clearly Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Dot point. Going to stop. There is... You need to understand something about the culture of the day, because it has implications actually for what we do when we talk about coming to the table, when we look at the text and it talks about us being welcome at God's table. All of all of that uh, comes from this understand or this cultural notion that to be invited to the table was actually a place of not just honour, but equity, like you were seen as an equal. If you were invited to the table, the, these were people that either you saw some, uh, you know, there was, you know, potential uh, political or financial alliance, or, you know, those sort of benefits, or, or they were family that you were, um, these were, you know, people that were um, your relatives, but certainly not people that were, of a, a lesser, you know, seen as a lesser to yourself. That that was that was the way that dining, particularly at a table, uh, in uh, the kind of upper classes of the society, right down to the the picture that it, as long as the host would pour you a drink, as long as the host kept your glass filled you were welcome at that table. So there's all sorts of social conventions around this idea of being at a table, sharing a meal together. And so to say that Jesus was associating with sinners wasn't just to say, you know, he was lined up behind them at Maccas, or even that he happened to work alongside them, but this was a comment about the way that he treated the way that he approached people who were seen by the religious elite or those who were educated, or those who had status and power. This is a comment on how Jesus treated them, not just that he associated with them, but that he shared his life with them, that he included them. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. He goes on to tell them the story about the lost sheep. Step it down, he tells the parable about the lost coin. And then we come to verse 11. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me some of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. And a few days later the younger son gathered all he had and travelled to a distant country. There he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself and thought, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but I am here dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he sent off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf and because uh, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him but he answered his father saying, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your command yet you have never given me even a younger goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God that has arms open wide. That we were lost, but now we're found. That we sing those words freely, recognising that you are the God that welcomed us when we didn't deserve it. Lord, we pray that we would hear your heart this morning as we open up this text. That we would recognise you, that we would hear your voice. Lord, let us be attentive to what you want to teach us this morning. Let us grow in who we are because of the knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is often called the parable of the prodigal son. So when you look at what opens and closes this text, it gives you insight into what it's actually about. If you were to watch a movie and the movie ended with, you know, a a resolution that was like the moral of the story, you would probably say that that movie was about whatever the moral of the story is. All the stuff that goes on in the middle might actually be kind of character, um, you know, defining characters and building the storyline, but if you were to ask what the story or what the movie was about, you'd say it was about whatever that resolved thing at the end was. And often that will be something that's alluded to at the beginning of the movie. It's It's a construct within a narrative that tells us what the important part of something is by opening and closing with this. This is, this is what this is about. So, these stories do tell us something about who God is, and certainly tell us this story of the prodigal son. But all these three parables are told to us for the purpose of this last little bit at the end of this parable. Just like it says at the beginning where it says, so he told them this story. Because they were asking why it was that he would associate with people who weren't the right kind of people. We're actually coming straight out of a chapter and there's no narrative break, it just is broken up into chapters because of the subject matter, but this is still part of one conversation where the disciples have been asking about who will be the greatest and who will have the position of privilege. It follows on with another discussion about what it is to be great in the kingdom. This is not an isolated little bit of text, an encouragement, which it is, about who God is and that we're all welcomed in, but it's a discussion about what it looks like to actually be part of a bigger picture. To recognise who God is and know him for ourselves is to know that God would desire that for every other person around us. So my message today is around the thought that this gospel, which is deeply personal, cannot simply be personal. That's the moral of this story. That it's a beautiful thing to be found by God and to know that we're his to be in his house. But he desires that everyone know that. The point of this story is that our job isn't to decide how much we're in, but to invite others in. These parables about the lost coin, the lost sheep, They're not so much descriptive as they are instructive. As in this is how we live out who God is. If we would seek the lost the way that he shows us that he loves the lost. If we would seek to welcome those in the way that he has welcomed us in. So the prodigal son is not, or who is the prodigal son is not the question in this text. Everyone is the prodigal son. That's universal. We are all welcomed by God and we know that we all have sinned and fallen short. So we're all the prodigal son. The question this text drives us to answer is... What are the ways that we allow ourselves to be the brother? What are the ways we decide who Jesus should associate with and who he shouldn't? What are the ways which we argue for our case and protect our rights and defend what we've won or fought for or or what we have done and instead of a posture of radical generosity towards the lost, one that welcomes, one that doesn't decide who's out, but waits a long way down that path. The father was waiting out so far that the, the brother didn't even recognise or didn't even know that his brother had come home yet. says, as he's walking up the path, I once heard a preacher say, I wonder how many times the father stood out on the path. My guess, having been a Christian maybe about 10 or 15 years, and knowing maybe a glimpse of who God is, would be every day. I guess that because that is my experience of God. That no matter how far we turn or run from Him, no matter how distant we feel, that when we turn towards Him, He's waiting there. That we create distance and separation, not God. He looks at us with open arms. Should we choose to humble ourselves and turn back to Him? So, the question of this text is what is leading us to sometimes put ourselves in the position of the brother? Because if we see what the kingdom is, if we recognize who God is, and if we know that his posture towards everyone is openness, if his way is grace and mercy, like we heard last week, then those who follow the way of Jesus need to be asking always, how are our ways not like his ways? How can we begin to walk more the way that he's inviting us into? You know, it's funny, it Was while well, um, Nathan mentioned some of the situations we've encountered over the last little while, we've had... Um, not only a a person that we couldn't locate because we needed someone to sign something caused us major dramas with being able to sort out some financial documentation. So we had to find this person who ended up being, like, completely not, like, on the internet at all, like, just not, you know, connected by anything. And I remember the... Um, know how excited we were when we found out that the person existed that we were potentially not going to have to go through a like several month long court process I mean we just had to go through a several month long uh, application process but that would have happened on top of the court process had we not found this person and then uh, to have had uh, the document that we had applied for which we'd needed that person to sign The document then to get lost by the legal uh you know legal team on their side completely out of our control but when have you ever had something important go missing i actually felt bad for the team of as much as i've been incredibly frustrated with this company that's caused us a lot of issues I lose things so often in my life that I had this level of empathy for the person that had lost this thing. Um, if anyone's probably been around me more than five minutes, um, they will have probably seen me like in a moment of I cannot find something that I really need right now, and when like you know, you're probably late or something important or what, you know, whether it be my keys or. Thankfully, I'd never lost a child or anything like that, like misplaced. I mean, they do. there's (laughs) there's been those moments. I remember one time at an Easter event when Grace decided to take herself off to the bathroom without telling anyone when she was all of like six years old um, at a public park and no one could find her for about 20 minutes and having, um, oh, it's actually Katie's 21st. And so in the middle of Katie's speeches for her 21st at the park, I start screaming like a mad woman in the park trying to find this child. So you know, like I do lose things quite frequently. So I felt for this team so much that I I actually couldn't be angry at them because I'm I'm like picturing this person on the other side of the desk just like, what have I done with this thing? We get these little stories in this passage of the text that talk about the celebration of something being found. This heart of God that's reflected that even one would be found. My early days in church we would often have the you know, youth alive rallies or, you know, big kind of outreach events and they'd have the preacher share a message and then invite people to come forward. People would come forward and people would scream and shout and, and cheer and and clap for you know, and celebrate the decision that was made. Much like when we have a baptism you know that when someone comes up out of the water and there's this recognition that what was dead has been made alive. A really cool picture that Thomas drew when he was about four of a Mason and Millard, um, who are working fly in, fly out at the moment, pray for them. Um, As a side note, they're currently on appeal, so um, precarious situation at best. But when, I think it was Millard who got baptised first, came up out of the water and he just had the you know like the victory stance like and Thomas had obviously seen this and he he drew this picture of um of both of the guys standing one one's in like a circle clearly in the pool like this and and they're both in like um uh, like a house shape because that was yeah they're in the church and he's come up out of the water, and like, but there, there was such a moment that like even a four-year-old could capture it in a picture. Um, there's a celebration when something that was lost is found. This is the purpose at the core of what we do as the church. And I think sometimes where we get lost or where this gets a little bit watered down is when we think that it only pertains to that group that walks up the front. When it only is the moment when someone gets baptised. But the work of the church in seeing what was lost be found, seeing what was dead, become alive, extends so far beyond those things. Those are often the origin moments, but not, they're not the sum total of everything that God celebrates. It's not the sum total of everything that these stories of celebration are about. There are things that are so broken in the world right now But every story of restoration is something that we should celebrate as the church. It's like the story that I shared about the groups in our community coming together to speak um, into issues and... um, but also to work together towards ending homelessness. This is a story of something that is maybe bigger than one person's decision to come down the front, but this is a story of someone or a group of people who were previously left out and then a community saying, no, we're gonna remember. You and include you in the way that we make our policies, in the way that we distribute funding, in the way that we work. This is a story of something that is the antithesis of who God is in his kingdom. But then a group of people, many of whom are Christians or guided by those beliefs, speak up for those who are lost and say that they need to be found. This is something that we can celebrate and recognise. It's the students who graduated at the end of the year, last year, with their year 11 and 12, who so, some who previously couldn't even leave their houses but a ministry that started with three Christians who were like, what do we do with these kids that the schools can't work with? Has evolved into something where they actually go out into the homes of young people who are socially isolated, who have mental health difficulties that have led to them becoming completely housebound or they have had drug issues or health problems or all kinds of things that have led to them being what we would only define as lost. In the bigger picture of this world we live in and this ministry that says that one matters enough to leave the 99 who are doing okay in a classroom to work in a school that's more expensive to run because you have more staff to kids and you have all this oversight and all this care and, so, and so support through psychologists and all of those sort of things. That but they matter enough. The one matters enough that we should go to radical lengths to reach them that's what walking in this way looks like and to recognize that god celebrates just as much as god god's heart is broken for those who are still lost in those systems that god's heart breaks for those who have been silenced those who've been excluded those who Feel so alone in the world that they don't see a way out or they find a way out. For those who have been marginalized by society or the greed of the world has led to them being in situations where they suffer extreme poverty, where the way that we're working in the world has led to people being in, as, in situations where their environment has become so uh, difficult to live in because of rising sea levels or higher temperatures or drought or increasing storms. All of these things speak not only to a bigger picture, And sometimes we go, oh, we talk so much in this church about all of those kind of big picture things and maybe we can't do so much about that and so it gets, it's a bit, you know, why do we talk about all of the big things? But in every big picture thing there are stories of individuals that are the ones that God loves so much are the ones that we are supposed to recognize and seek and give up everything. So you know this text ends the passage a chapter later ends with this little verse. I was like, if only we took that part literally. Where it says, so Give up all your possessions. That's pretty radical. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to do that. Um, go for it if you like. Um, <laughs> probably don't, because um, there's you know there's a whole lot of context to that. But there's a difference between possession in this in that passage and just stuff that we you know, that we have to live. Possession was something that someone who had land ownership, who had status in society, possession is something that would be owned or acquired or gathered up and stored up. So it's not, you know, we see possessions as like, well, my Bible is my possession and, you know, my bed and my, you know, like all that. But to speak of possessions, this was actually speaking of that which is stored up. what if we could do that? What if we could live in a way that looked like actually answering the call to be so radically open to others and to this gospel that so radically welcomed us that we would consider the lost in whatever way They're lost right now and do whatever we can do. Commit whatever it is that God is calling us to and for every person that is different. The work that you do, wherever that is, can be part of that work of seeing the lost, found, the dead brought back to life. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not, you know, make a giant donation to something. It's a posture where we say, this is who God is. That's why those stories are in the centre of all of those parables, the story about God with his open arms welcoming the sun the story about the celebration when the coin was found, the story about the shepherd that would leave 99 to go after the one. Because we can do none of this without recognising that God has done all of that. We cannot attempt to put things back together in all the ways that they're broken, Without recognizing that it is God who brings things back together and makes it right, we can do none of this until we recognize God's open arms for ourselves. That's why I open with the thought that this gospel is deeply personal. But it's not simply personal. I'm actually going to share the communion this morning. From the thought in this, I shared it with our team, maybe a bit in a bit more um, depth this morning. But this picture of God laying down his life for us, his body broken for us. You'll hear that as you come forward each week when we share communion. And the person who you receive the bread from may say something along the lines of his body broken for you. Right back in the beginning uh, ...of God seeking to restore humanity to himself. There's this picture of the covenant he makes with Abraham. And as complicated and complex and you know, a whole lot of stuff... ...that you can work through in all of that conversation... The simple story is God making covenant with humanity is literally, by definition, it means to pass between the pieces, covenant, because they would uh, have an animal sacrifice bought and the two pieces separated uh, and then the covenant would be made by the people who were like the two leaders, sometimes kings or, you know, or those kind of things, uh, would walk between um, the pieces or pass between the pieces. And we have this picture in, um, in the story where Abraham and God have had this conversation about God's promise to humanity. And the torch or the light of God moves between the pieces. Then we see all through the text this prophetic picture about the broken pieces that God, whether it's speaking of the scattered people of Israel, whether it's speaking more individually to um, you know the psalmist and all sorts of uh, reflections from the prophets talk about you know, brokenness and broken pieces being brought back together and some more you know, directly prophetic in Isaiah, talking about um, the broken body that would um, bring healing. And we see this picture of Jesus feeding 5,000 and the, um, the bread that's broken and handed out and then, um, and then Jesus is to gather it up again. And as it's gathered up, the the miracle that's created is something so much bigger and more incredible than what one person's bread and fish could ever have been. There's this picture again of broken pieces becoming 12 baskets of provision. Then we see Jesus goes to Calvary, whose body is broken for us, then he speaks of us as his body and we don't often reflect on the fact that sometimes we just feel like broken pieces. We don't necessarily feel like the army of God that we get told that we are or, you know, all of those things that sound very um, comforting and there's a strength in that and there's... Sometimes we just feel like a gathering of broken pieces. But we have the assurance from start to finish and revealed in its fullness on the cross that between those broken pieces as they're brought back together exists the light of God, the spirit of God. And so when we come together and share communion, we bring together at least, this is that, the scripture that it talks about where two or more are gathered. This is because it exists between the pieces. When we come together, as his church and allow the heart of God to begin to shape us, begin to follow who he is, search the depths of the reality and revelation of God in Jesus, then this light begins to pass between pieces and bring something back together. By his spirit, his power. All we're given the instruction to do is to seek him. Seek his face. To learn what God looks like. To get to know Jesus. And to come together. And do that in community. I say all this to say, and the reason why I are opened with talking about our Easter, the way that we're going to be sharing those messages and all of that to say that as we become a people, as we seek who God is, we also Need to let that heart of God drive us in a way that opens doors to others. Because sometimes we can get so caught up in just trying to figure out God and trying to find wholeness in ourselves that we forget. That the posture of God is always welcome, is always grace and mercy, is always seeking that which is lost, and as long as there is anything lost, then our posture needs to be also. And so as we head towards Easter, if you're participating in... Lent and that season of prayers. We pray for the 24 hours of prayer over the Easter weekend. My encouragement is let your heart turn towards those that are lost. Be willing to ask what are the lines that I've been drawing saying who God should be eating with and who he shouldn't. How can we posture ourselves with radical generosity and openness that invites people in no matter how desperate their situation or how far from God they feel? How can we make that real to people around us, bear witness to who God is? how can we begin to recognise that more for ourselves? How can we be shaped by that on a daily basis? We know that we can be shaped by that on a weekly basis in this place. So if I can ask the ushers, we probably just need two this morning. we come together as broken pieces recognise that it's God that meets us here that is healing and restoring in this place whatever your need for healing or restoration this morning pray that you find that you begin to open up to that but it wouldn't stop there who would turn and seek, like this shepherd who left 99 for the one, like me when I've realised I've left something behind that's really important, like I'm sure the legal secretary did when they realised they couldn't find our document, start searching. Let us always be searching for how we can open doors. this This is the table, not of the church but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have a little. You who have been here often, you have just come for the first time. You who have tried to follow Jesus, you who have failed in following Jesus, and you who have just decided to follow Jesus today, come. Let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now, if necessary, go be a forgiver and run back, because it is the Lord who invites us. It is God's will that those who desire Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit would encounter him here. So come. I'm going to close off the service now. Uh, if you are able to, and if you're willing to, we would like you to stand for, the, for, the, for our benediction. So it says on the screen. Yes, it is. How great is that? Let's read it together. Church, we come as we are but we are sent out not the same. Sanctuary, he speaks over us a new name to bless and rebuild this city. So we go, broadcast good news for the poor. Let the blind see, set free the oppressed. Live jubilee, let it be in his liberating grace that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. God bless you all.